Welcome back to The Doctor Is In. We are entering our fourth year of podcasting and looking back at our start. We started the podcast during the peak of the 2020 COVID quarantines in an effort to continue to speak with our colleagues when we could no longer meet in person. Over the next few weeks, as we return to our beginnings, we encourage you to listen to our guests' most recent interviews after you hear their first and see their growth and adaptation through these unprecedented times. This week, our interview is with Dr. Mark Lovesred, originally recorded in April of 2020. Truly, thank you for growing with us. Welcome to The Doctor Is In Quarantine. In this podcast series, I'm talking to friends and colleagues in the cannabis and horticulture industries to see how they're doing during the COVID-19 crisis. You'll hear conversations about the impacts we've seen so far on the supply and demand of agricultural products and resources, how travel schedules for work and conferences have been upended, and how we're all coping with toilet paper shortages, or not. My guests also give their predictions for the medium and long-term impacts this pandemic may have on our industries and society at large. The general consensus is that it depends a lot on how long the quarantine will last. With that, I invite you to sit back and join the conversation. If you wanna share any of your experiences or observations through this crisis, you can find us on Instagram or LinkedIn. Enjoy. In this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Mark Lesfred, an associate professor at McGill University who leads the biomass production laboratory, where they develop methods and technologies to improve environmental control, energy efficiency, harvesting and post-harvest handling, and really try to help unearth the bioprocesses of living organisms. Some of my listeners might be familiar with his research topic of amber light, which has the potential to upend everything that we know about, say, red and blue lights effects on PAR. Mark is interesting in that he grew up on a farm in Alberta, Canada, where he learned the value of shortening the nutrient cycle between production and waste, a topic that we discuss. So sit back and enjoy a conversation with Dr. Mark Lesred. Good morning. Oh, I guess it's afternoon now. Just just a bit after. Nothing serious. Okay. <laughs> Nothing serious. <laughs> How are you today? I'm doing well. Yourself? Uh, I'm doing well. Uh, yeah, we're we're staying busy. Are you staying busy? Yeah, we, we started classes again last week, or sorry, Monday, so I'm teaching online classes. So you weren't teaching for a period of time? Yeah, we had two week lockdown. Well, uh, kicked out of university and not allowed to do. So all classes were suspended for one week um, and then two weeks at the universities and at schools. So we're now trying to figure out how to do things. Huh. So is that like an early spring break? So we had spring break before. Um, Oh. So... We start classes right after New Year's, so on about the 4th or whatever day that was, that was 5th, I think it was, the Monday after. Um, So we started then, so our spring break is actually the first week of um, March. So you had spring break and then you had two weeks of lockdown? Uh, No, we had spring break and then we were back for one week and then we did two weeks of lockdown. Oh, wow. So, So now you're teaching online classes. Yeah, so I did my first one yesterday and I have another one tomorrow. But I did. I decided to do it as, as some. We, we've been given flexibility on how we do it, but I'm doing it as a as a um, a real time Zoom presentation, and okay. then I record it, and then if people want to watch it afterwards, they can. Oh, that's really nice. Do you get many people who are actually attending live? I got 36 on my first. I have only three more lectures until the end of the semester. So, so I had two classes. Uh, my one class, I'd already presented all the material. It was just um, students have to give their presentations, and I have to cancel all that now. But for mine, I was we were over halfway through, obviously, so I just have to wrap things up now. Well, that's kind of nice. Yeah. You have an early semester like that. Um Have you guys, I mean, I don't really know anything about what's going on in Canada. We're obviously like so consumed with what's happening in the U.S. and whether it's organized or not organized. 
here and, uh, you know, all the states are kind of taking the lead on how to respond. Um, I mean, have you guys, has Canada had many infections? You guys, Are you guys testing people? Like, Yeah, we're, we're testing. Uh, what's our total numbers? So here in Quebec, which is where I'm based, we're, we're the epicenter right now. We became the highest numbers. So we're now the highest numbers. We're currently sitting at 4,611 4, uh, confirmed. Just in Quebec. That's just in Quebec. So we're at 4,000 confirmed cases. If we look at confirmed cases in Canada, hmm. Canada's sitting at, we're just creeping up to 10,000 right now. Okay. So Quebec has the highest number. We're double what Ontario is. So they're about 2,000 below us, but they had spring break after us. So a lot of this is we had the first spring break across Canada, and then Ontario had it the week after us where we were back in classes. So we think this is one of the reasons why we're ahead of everybody. Really? Yeah. So do you think they're going to catch up or do you think that somehow they missed that incubation period when you guys all went back to school for that week? Uh, well, we think we got it all from you guys. Oh, well, I'm sure China. you did. <laughs> yeah. Or from China or Italy or wherever they were. Um, so we've had cases from basically all parts of the world coming in. So we were the first back and then we started seeing cases, but it seems to be a, a high percentage of young people are getting it here in, in Quebec. Really? It's because of all the spring breakers and the people who are still going to bars and such, as opposed to other parts of the world, which seems to be circulating more general population. Mm -hmm. But then if you look at our death rate, we're a lot lower than anybody else. That's interesting. Why do you think that is? Because, well, because more young people are getting it and they're able to get through it? Exactly. So if you look at the stats that says for the rest of the world, um, people... Like there's only been a few cases of people under like under 20 that have died from it and right. under nine, almost zero, like tiny, tiny percentages. And then it's not until you get over the age of 60 that the numbers start to go up significantly. So. So is your family doing OK? Yeah, we're we're in a reasonably nice house and have a property, so I won't say we're in bad shape. OK, OK. So you actually have somewhere to roam on your own property without having to worry about social distancing, walking down the sidewalk. Well, no, we, we don't have sidewalks where I live. Oh, OK. So we have to walk on the road or around our property. OK, so I mean, you'd rather risk it with a car than with a person, at least at this point. Right. So, well, it's also a well, we're we're suburbia, but not suburbia with sidewalks. So we're kind of that what they call sprawl might be the best way to describe uh, it. Okay. And the value of sprawl is that you have a quarter of an acre to yourself or a third of an acre and the roads, everybody walks and plays on the roads anyway. So it's like being in a rural part of the world. So when you're driving, you just have to know that that's what's going to be there. So, okay. So you live not really rural, but outside of town. So have you, seen much of an effect on your guys sort of daily life I mean obviously you know you you go to the university I don't know what your your wife does but um she's, does it so feel she's sort of natural anyway just being at yeah home? so she's a she's a school teacher ah. uh, and so the university has been shut down I actually went in yesterday to get some more supplies for I moved some of my experiments to my house really uh, so, and a couple of my students moved their experiments to their house also. So we're doing some experiments at the house, but it, it's plant growth. So it's not like we're doing high chemical stuff. It's literally just growing plants indoors. Um, and <laughs> A new definition for indoor agriculture. Yeah. But I, and when I was a graduate student, I was doing this all the time just because I didn't always want to walk into the university. So if it was a quick pretest, then it made sense to do it. So, okay. I've set up a couple others for a couple neighbors so that they can start testing for me if they want to. And that's awesome. Have and I won't say it's going to be rigorous, publishable data, but it's at least testing and seeing how things are working. Um, so, so I had to go into work and get a few more supplies and I've authorized my students if they want to go in and get some supplies to start growing plants at home, go for it. But we're finding that the supply chain is severely inhibited. So, Trying to get Rockwell cubes is really, really hard now. I was wondering about that. I, I mean, so far, most of the people that I've talked to in the U.S., um, they haven't felt a disruption in the supply chain yet. 
Um, but I was, I was curious if in Canada, if you guys source a lot of stuff from outside the country and the borders are locked down and flights can't come in, if you guys um, are experiencing something different. So at this point, the, so people going for recreational non-critical travel is banned um, and they're toying with making non-critical uh, travel across Canada being banned also like they made the recommendation if it's not critical don't travel but we still have local flights are still happening okay. um, there's a few jurisdictions more remote locations that have gone into full isolation so there's no flights going in and they set up checkpoints um, so but the oh, wow the border is still running, so they're still trucking things around. When I'm out on the road, it is a reduced traffic load out there, but you still see the truckers hauling things around and moving things around. So, And there's been a bunch of um, processes that have been considered essential. So I drove past like a, a hotel, actually, where our conference was at, uh, and there's nobody there. And there's a bunch of strip malls along the way, and they're all vacated. But then I go to a shipping and receiving operation, and their parking lot's almost completely full wow so that and they they ship medical supplies and other oh, well, yeah so they're they're flat out like i don't know if they could move much faster than they probably are right now wow are you guys able to get medical supplies we've been watching the u.s news and i'd say a fair bit of it is there's a lot of people i think yelling and screaming because they want to be heard and canada doesn't like doing that as a whole <laughs> the Canadian culture is not one that if you're if you're down to two weeks supply that we're still going to yell and scream. So we are having a harder time getting supplies, but I won't say that we're carrying on and making it as big a news story as other parts of the world are. Okay. So don't get me wrong, we're we're short of everything, but we're also ramping up places that can start production. So uh, one of the hockey manufacturer hockey equipment manufacturers is now making medical supplies kind of stuff. So. That's so and, awesome. And every distillery I know out there is now trying to make hand sanitizer and other cleaning products. So yeah, they're, yep. they're flat out on that. And they got the they're we're similar to the U.S. in that we have provincial jurisdiction, so that's the same as state as right. well as federal jurisdiction. And health though falls under the jurisdiction of the provinces; it doesn't fall under federal jurisdiction. So each province has the authority to do what they want. Um, so each province is doing different levels of uh, isolation or a few places are doing quarantines, but that's kind of rare more is we don't have any true stay at home orders in the true sense, but okay. highly recommended that you don't go out unless you absolutely have to kind of things. Right, right. Yeah, it's been interesting here in the US how it kind of started locally, then grew to the statewide. And then obviously, you know, federally, there's there's pressure for the federal government to make sort of a blanket statement that says everybody just stay home because, you know, I think, I think the map that I saw last night, something like 30 or 40 states do have a shelter in place or quarantine order, but there's a lot of pockets that haven't. And what I find really interesting is that it's not sort of grouped states together. It's like one rebel state in the, you know, surrounded by other states that have quarantine that don't have it. And it just makes me think how they're almost like this keystone in a way that, that you know, it that all roads could point to them if they don't self-isolate or quarantine. So, so our big argument and what the government pushed for and what McGill actually closed the shop a day before than we were told we were supposed to is purely because we're trying to reduce the, the challenge for the healthcare system. But following the curves and listening to all the people who are doing modeling on this, everybody's going to have to get sick or if we're lucky, we're going to get vaccinated. But it's not like at the numbers that we're sitting at now, I don't think there's going to be much of a potential of stopping it dead personally. Right. Um, but it will be recurring and slowly coming back and forth. So we're trying to control it at a certain level. But the challenge ends up becoming is what percentage of uh, infection rate is the medical profession will able to handle? And then how do we play with that number? Because if we go full lockdown, but you're in a place like North Dakota, which has very, very low numbers, then but 
and a reasonably good healthcare system, then maybe that's too aggressive for them. Mm. And so I, I'm not bothered by the patchwork mentality because some jurisdictions possibly could run and can deal with the, the numbers and other places can't. So it almost has to be a local decision. That's a good point. Yeah, I just keep wondering, like, I mean, how many of us have actually been exposed to it? How many of us have actually had it pass through us, um, whether it was asymptomatic or low symptoms? And one question I don't know, maybe you know the answer to, but I, I haven't heard this is like with the testing, does it test you that you have it? But does it also test that you did have it? And that if you had it, you're no longer, um, you know, infectious? Yeah, two different tests. Um, so right now, Quebec is predominantly doing the nasal swab, and that's measuring if you have if you're shedding the virus, so you're infected and sick, um, okay. is what they're testing for. So they're testing for the the virus presence in your body and the fact that you're shedding it. If you're pre that state, there's no test for it because it's too low of numbers. Like I don't know how low they can go, but if you're not shedding, it's really hard to find. Okay. might be possible to find it, but it's really hard. But then there's an antibody, and those tests are just starting now. Okay. But okay. I just don't know. that you did have it, and now you have yeah. the antibodies to fight it. Yeah. And, I, and I, I know that people say that they have those, but I don't think those have ramped up at all. So It's just like, how long does this last? I mean, do we all have to wait to be tested um, well, or wait till we have a vaccine? I mean, when do we get to see each other again? Well, it's... Well, if we were on Zoom face, I'd see you right now. So. <laughs> good call. Good call. I, uh, I, I've so- learned that Zoom video through this, at least my um, level of subscription, does not support good video. And in fact, there's a warning uh, when I log in that says, if you are planning to use video with three or more people, then you're going to have crappy quality. And I've learned that even just with one other person, it's crappy quality. So that's yeah, why we're just enough. doing audio. Yeah. yeah. So I, because McGill has a, now a full package uh, for it, obviously we're being given the top stuff. So Right. Right. So I should have had you host the call. Yeah. I was told I'm not supposed to for things other than for education. So I, I, that's fair. That's fair. Okay. Has, has it been hard switching to online teaching or because kind of where you're at with your classes anyway, it wasn't too much of a challenge? Um, well, a couple of years ago, I had a health issue and I actually was bedridden for a couple months. And so I did a bunch of this from bed already. So, wow. so when they told me I had to do this again, I'm like, oh, I can do this. I've already done nice. it. Once. So <laughs> it's not. And I'd say most people, it was kind of scary initially, but so far, everybody I've chatted with at McGill seems to be adapting reasonably well, and the students are taking it quite well. Like when I was doing my online, uh, before I did it through Skype, so they just broadcast it in, in the classroom. Okay. And it worked okay, and I had a camera set up so I could see that the class, but not everyone. Now I have everybody's face if they want, or at least the, and I see who's all attending. I understand that some might be plural or people aren't there. But then I also have a, I run a second laptop, which gives me, it is a student view. And then I have the chat box. And so people, instead of having the voice, I'm the only one talking and everybody else is typing me questions furiously. And so then I'm trying to answer them and make it real time. So I found it's been quite good and reasonably dynamic. In some ways, maybe more dynamic than a classroom because they have the ability to communicate continuously to me and I have the I don't have to completely stop the class to answer their questions like I can be responding to people or have other students can be responding so in some ways it's more dynamic than I was expecting it to be that's really interesting I, I would totally expect the opposite and maybe it's because it's an actual class I mean I feel like you know when you attend a webinar Um, or a conference call, uh, that it can be easy to get distracted by, I don't know, the people around you or your phone going off or whatever. And so it can be harder to be engaged or focus on someone speaking uh, remotely than if you are actually in a room full of people watching a presentation. Um, 
but that's that's interesting and and it probably brings down a barrier of people even being embarrassed or um you know just afraid to raise their hand or speak of out course. and ask a question so that's kind of cool yeah, I found it. I, I was surprised at how well it went. A few of the students had their camp web cameras on, so I can see their faces. Nice. And I warned them beforehand that if your camera's on, if you're picking your nose, I see you. So does, <laughs> and so does everybody else. So be aware that this is live. Has that happened yet? I have not seen that one, but there is people who you you have the kid running around behind or the cat who's jumping onto the person's face wanting to get petted and stuff. Yep, and I yep. haven't seen those ones. So those yep. things happen. So I am um, I have found it somewhat refreshing to be in some of these conference calls during this where uh, we do see people's uh, camera or people see them on the screen and just how casual everyone is, you know, people are wearing sweatshirts. I'm sure they're wearing yoga pants or boxers or something or sweatpants. You know, they have their hair up. They're not all made up. You know, you see their fur babies or their real babies in the background and maybe their partner walks by. And it's just, I find it really refreshing because people just aren't sort of keeping up appearances. It's everyone is in the same boat and everyone's working from home. And so why do we need to pretend that we're not, you know? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, I was doing it. I was doing it all in bed um, <laughs> because that's where I had always done it before when I had my health issue. And people are like, well, I don't know if I quite like the idea of you being in bed. And I'm like, well, so I can sit up and then you looks like I'm not in bed, but I don't see the difference. I am dressed. I have khakis and a golf shirt on, so I'm professional, but Okay. More importantly, do you have a Canada Dry in your hand? I do not have a Canada Dry in my hand. Okay. Well, and and also, haven't you heard that you're supposed to create separation between like your living and your workspace, you know, so that you don't have anxiety when you go to bed? Oh, the the (laughs) problem with a professor is ultimately it's all one big smudge, anyways. So, yeah, I hear you. So, right now, at any given moment, I am. Well, it's I'm running a lot of projects. So we brought eight projects home. So I am running eight individual. Well, I have three in my house. uh, And then I have students that are running the other five at their places. So it's not like the work life balance. Like I go for a walk every day. So I'm trying to separate. But it's not like I'm I've ever had a good separation. My wife, if I'm not doing my research and growing my plants, then I don't know what I'm doing. Like that's Mm. half of my identity completely my family and other things being the other half, but it's not like people wake up in the morning and are be anxious about doing something. And I'm checking to make sure that my things are running properly, not because I'm scared that they're going to die, but because I really want to see what the response is like, mm-hmm. this is fun for me. So can you please publish a paper of like doing these experiments at home versus doing them in like a controlled laboratory setting Ooh. to see like what the differences are and if there are differences it would be such an interesting case study actually if if somebody or multiple people did something like that like you know having these controlled cool, experiments versus less controlled experiments yeah well we we did do a, a run like that with the ncr 101 about 15 years ago, 20 years ago, and they tested a bunch of different chambers to see how close they could all grow. And in the end, it was surprisingly poor. What so, was surprisingly poor? Like they the didn't re- repeatability, well things didn't grow well. Yeah, the repeatability of the results. So if I'm growing just because of the water that the localized water or the um, maybe the bulbs are slightly different age, slightly different lot on the seed that you're using. Um, temperature, humidity, slightly, slightly different. Um, they were larger differentials than we were expecting, like not less than 10%, like greater than 10%. Small changes make a big difference. Yeah. I did not know that, but it makes sense. Yeah. There's too many variables. You can't control them all. Yeah. It, 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 we find that, and it's one of the big arguments, like with organic growers versus non-organic, um, people and you can do it through controlled environment the people who are more attentive obviously will almost always have better plants of uh, course. and so usually the organic people are more passionate and so they're more attentive 
And I'm not saying that they're that their plants aren't good. I'm just saying that if I take a highly attentive, good grower who's doing conventional versus somebody who's organic, I can't tell the difference personally. And I haven't ever been able to tell the difference, but if you take somebody who's doing conventional and they're non-attentive or organic non-attentive, now all bets are off. And I've seen those systems too. So, so no, no, no speak to the, uh, I'm using speak in the general terms, but understand what the plant is trying to communicate to you when it, does certain things so so okay good segue to agriculture so have you i mean i have a couple questions one is just about general ag and horticulture and then one of course about cannabis um which is also legal in canada i guess we, we can start with the cannabis question is cannabis deemed essential in canada at this point it fall it's fallen under the agriculture and they kept the dispensaries open Okay. Um, there was a run on them, so they've had higher sales than they've probably ever had. Yeah. Uh, out of this, because everybody knew they were going to be locked in their house for a while, and okay. higher consumption, people like using it for a stress relief. So I can see that happening. Um, most of the facilities. This was last week, so I don't know what's happened this week. But last week, almost all the facilities I knew of were still running. Yeah. Huh. I I I I wonder if. Um, consumption will go up during these lockdowns. And I'm also curious if more new users, if there, if more people will try it for the first time because they can, um, or because they're curious or because they're sick of their beer gut or because they're not afraid of, you know, drug testing or something like that. I'm, I'm super curious what, what, what'll happen with cannabis. Yeah. I, I don't have a good answer, but I know that. So almost all the cannabis companies I've chatted with, there's that's three total um so i won't say a lot yeah that and they they said they were surprised at how quickly they were selling out like they can't they're not ahead of it right now in most cases oh wow are is there a cannabis delivery service in canada um so canada post our national carrier is the only one that's allowed to ship cannabis um, by shipping Uh, otherwise it has to be um through uh, either medical dispensaries through the, uh, I guess, pharmacy theoretically, right? Uh, as well as um, people who are growing it themselves. But everybody in Canada has the right to grow. I want to say three plants. Okay. Maybe four. I think it's three um, plants specifically. So people are growing these for themselves. Uh, and then if you get a medical, um, so if it's licensed as a medical, then that's the the number that can be basically certified for that. So I know some people who are up to have the right to grow, I think it's 75 plants if they're making them into smoothies and things like that. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. So the cannabis industry is doing well yeah. so far. Um, how's the, how's the horticulture industry, the ag industry? What, can you remind me? So what are some of the major agricultural and horticultural products produced in Canada? And are they, running full tilt yet i imagine it's a little bit colder where you are still in april um i mean have people planted seeds in the ground or greenhouses operating yeah so we so we have three i'd say three levels um so there's the full controlled environment group so that's the the converted shipping containers or um full high production greenhouses and they, they grow all year round. So we have a company that's a rooftop greenhouse company here in Quebec called Lufa, um, as well as like Savoura Tomatoes. And we have uh, some a bunch of other companies that are scattered around Quebec, a whole boatload in Ontario, lower mainland of British Columbia and a smattering Alberta and other places that have greenhouses. And they're predominantly um, bell peppers, cucumbers and tomatoes. And those are greenhouse operations. They usually shut down in January um, if they are going to shut down, but then they're back to production. So they're, they're full production right now. Okay. And our big thing is that because electrical costs are quite low, uh, in this part of the world, at least Quebec, uh, the greenhouse operation basically maximize yield for the, the off seasons of what the, the rest of the world is doing. So when California and Mexico are at their lower production, that's usually when we try to ramp up our highest Okay. for, for those ones. Uh, as we, and then there's some that are kind of semi-controlled and they are, they've been slowly ramping themselves up now also. So they've been getting some production. 
Uh, and then we have our field production and field in this part of the world and most, maybe Southern Ontario is doing something, but I doubt it. Uh, in this part, our ground is still frozen and we still have snow on the ground. So it's not like we can do any production yet, but in about a month, we will have actually less than a month, probably in about two weeks, three weeks, the ground will be thawed enough that we can actually start uh, production. So we'll start seeding and there'll be some horticultural, but also our standard cash crops as well as our cereal grains and other crops that we can put into those and so those will start ramping themselves up so people who are going to be doing like onions they've already started pre-germination on those some of the tomatoes have already started going pre-germination um, so that we're ready for the planting that's going to happen in about a month from now okay and so they as far as you know none of those farmers have had a problem receiving supplies you mentioned rock wool was hard to come by um yeah. So, um, so, so what's most, happening with the greenhouse growers who need uh, rock wool? Um, so there, there's still, I'm not positive about them specifically. I do know that most of the farmers would have been prepping um, and the supply companies would have been prepping up until about March. So they're still asking for stuff and there'll still be shipments of them. So there might be some shortages. Uh, my brother works as a, or as a farmer out in Western Canada and He's been selling a lot of, he's a seed grower, so he sells the grain to the, the farmers. And there's been a lot of requests for, for grain as a normal season. So it's mm. curious how the purchases of grain seem to be differing this year from previous years. And it's based on what the going prices are. So for some reason, because of China has put an embargo on buying canola uh, from us, which is like an oil seed crop. Yeah. Um, most people are staying out of the canola and going to other crops because of that. So China is not playing fair by any stretch and we know this. So we're just going to other crops to, to fill the other demands. Hmm. It's, it's interesting. I have a, a friend in South Carolina who uh, grows hemp on, you know, hectares of land and they converted some of their land this year to uh, tomato and okra uh, because one, they're not really sure what's going to happen with hemp demands. And also because they feel like under this uh, crisis that tomatoes and okra will be in higher demand and that they'll have more of a consumer market for those products. Um, yeah. So that, so that's become, so that's the my latest rant that I've actually been going off on here is that our challenge right now is because we locked down the border, Canadians as a whole, so there's a percentage, something under 5% are primary farmers. Uh, food, total food production, let's say around 20% of the population. Um, but if we're doing large-scale agriculture with machinery, we can run that. Like the farmers can operate that, the milk producers, dairy board, um, chicken producers and such can run that but our field agriculture we use a lot of temporary labor coming from other countries predominantly Central America and we can probably get most of the crop into the ground but we're not going to be able to harvest a lot of this yeah. uh, unless we get this labor and that's local if we're going down to California or Washington State Oregon State uh, the primary food producing regions that we we import from uh Florida and the, the Carolinas kind of stuff. So the Southern edges seem to be where we get most of it from Arizona smattering too. Uh, the, we're going to be, if the labor doesn't come in and harvest this, we're going to have a shortage of a lot of these things. So the controlled environment space is not a bad place to be in because we can meet the demand for tomatoes and cucumbers and peppers. But if we're going to be looking for grapes, that's not something we're good at producing. We usually import that from other parts of the world. Um, Chile, the United States, other places. Uh, and if we go through some of our other produce, it's it's almost always sourced outside. So if the supply chains stay open, we can probably use it. But if we're needing migrant workers to fill these demands to harvest this, I don't know where that's going to come. So it wouldn't surprise me. We went, I went looking to try to buy some grapes and the price is now $8 a bunch. Normally wow. if you're sitting at two i mean three to five dollars a bunch at worst so i i'm seeing the produce costs are, are going up quite significantly yeah that's really interesting i I've, i have been wondering about that if the labor shortages are going to affect either seeding 
or harvest. You know, once you have the seed in the ground, it's like, okay, you let, I mean, it's not like you do nothing, but you know, you're, you're, you're letting the plant grow and you probably don't need as much labor to let the plant grow and produce. But then once you get to that harvest and even the food processing and um, post-harvest and all the things that are associated with harvesting that crop, how, yeah, how does that happen? Yeah. Um, can people go out and pick their own? Can they keep six foot separation and let people pick their own? Well, we do have the, we do have the you pick gardens and places right. like that, but just this be is at gonna, a massive scale. Yeah. This is going to take a, a change of like the idea of having local food has slowly been building. I've been seeing. Yeah. Um, so try not to import. And so, but I would, we've been chatting with local butchers and local, and they've never seen this much consumption ever locally. Um, wow. And so then the challenge is, is that like, there's been some people that say, well, I go to the grocery store and it looks like people are hoarding it. I don't actually, some cases they are, so I can't say for all, but there's some cases where people just had half a day to one day worth of food supply in their house. And now they need to have one week worth of supply or two weeks worth of supply. And so instead of going and buying a basket, they're buying two carts worth. Yeah. And then people say, well, look at you, you're hoarding. And I'm like, no, I'm just filling up my pantry which has never been full. So trying to shift this dynamics is going to take a lot of work. Like this is, I don't think this is a one year, like if we're going to stay in this kind of semi lockdown home isolation kind of thing, we got years worth of challenges to try to do this. Like controlled environment agriculture is going to have to basically step up tenfold, maybe higher. Can we replace all of Chilean, Argentina, um, Mexico supply? in or at least a large portion of that within the next couple of years and I don't know like this is serious challenges ahead of us I mean local grow local um, supporting your local uh, farmer and community with jobs and all these things has been one of the sort of central messages of a lot of people touting the benefits of vertical farms and controlled environment agriculture in general do you think that this magnifies that push? Do you think this um, demonstrates that controlled environment ag can meet the, that local need and that there is advantages to growing local beyond just reducing the carbon footprint of the truck, you know, the semi truck traveling 3000 miles from California? I mean, I, I feel like all those naysayers who are like, yeah, but you know, the energy you use to operate this vertical farm far out see, out exceeds the, you know, the carbon footprint of that truck. But I feel like none of those naysayers ever took into account something like this crisis. No, agreed. And it's, it's going to change. I think the longer we do it, the more it's going to change things. I, I, I've always modeled my research in my life looking back at my great-grandfather and then my grandfather and they my great-grandfather obviously he was post u.s civil war uh, but he went through a bunch of other war periods and then came into into north america um, he was from norway originally so he came across on these things and a lot of the things that happened under my grandfather pre-first world war kind of things were, I'd say were sustainable. I won't say they're well understood, but we applied the fertilizer back to the field. We had to have a certain level of animals on the field for egg production and milk, but it wasn't just for that. Like people say, well, it's a meat consumption thing. It was also the fact that we needed to recycle those nutrients. So mm -hmm. after I have my kitchen scrap, I'm people would compost, but it was better to have a pig there because now you had a pig eating on it. You could get the meat from it. But then you also had that manure, which you could then use, which has been pre-processed, can be used as a fertilizer source. Uh, and so is there a way that we can start shortening those nutrient cycles and those recycling cycles? Uh, obviously, plastic is one of the great challenges out of that. But if we're doing paper and I'm feeding it to a cow, the cow can eat it and actually uses it a bit of energy. I won't say it's great energy by them, but it's not something that is terminal like plastic is. Um, so there's going to be have to be a challenge of trying to link together these cycles to try to, instead of taking the supply chain from 
I'm picking on Mexico, but basically from Mexico and bringing all their produce up here, is there a way that we can recycle the nutrients faster at the local so that we can get food production, manure management, all these things done? And I personally feel that that period before the First World War had a reasonably good understanding of how to do that. And we've forgotten a lot of that. Yeah. And we have to figure out how to do that again. I love that. Shorten the nutrient cycle. That's uh, provocative for sure. Uh, have you, I mean, it, it sounds like you're, you guys probably aren't wasteful people anyway, but have you noticed if your own personal food waste or just waste in general has reduced during this period, this short period we've experienced already? Well, I, I'm, I, I'm one of these people that I was raised on a farm where anything that was left over became soup. So <laughs> nice. My, my dad was a, a big fanatic and still is a big fanatic of specialty soups of whatever was left over. Uh, so I, I'm quite good at being able to manage the fridge and not do food waste. Uh, plus, we have a benefit that we have a little guinea pig that eats a lot of our our, our peelings and such like that. So Nice. Uh, so we try to keep that nutrient cycle as low as possible. Uh, as a kid growing up on a farm, I would have pigs also, and it was purely, it was a, a way to get rid of all of our, our garden, I mean, our garden or our kitchen waste products. I never had to compost. I just fed it all to the pigs. So, hmm. so I, I don't, I've never felt that I was poor. And I mean, like poor is in like a, a poor understanding of that cycling system. Right, right. But this is starting to highlight it that, and I run into people that go, look how good I am. I have such a low carbon footprint. But then you go hang out with them and you're like, you do know that those things aren't low carbon footprint steps. Like, <laughs> like people come to me and say, well, I bought a Tesla car and look how low the carbon footprint is. Great. That's the electricity you're buying. But if you're in a place like Colorado that uses coal power to generate your electricity, you're now no longer a low carbon footprint. That's right. And you have to understand that the lithium ion batteries have a challenge and all these other things have a challenge. So you want a low carbon footprint, have a horse. I'm sorry, but <laughs> we're going to go back to horses. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting though, when you mentioned plastic and I don't, I think it's, I don't know what the right uh, adjective is, but it, I'll just use the word interesting that, you know, they've shown that the virus can live on paper, cardboard, right. For 24 hours, but on plastic yeah. for several days. Yeah. And it's just like, ah, you know, that age old question, paper or plastic. Well, suddenly that doesn't become an option anymore. And it also just sort of demonstrates the evil, if I can use that word, of plastic, that it's not really doing us any favors um, with our health. No. Well, and so but there's a double split to that one. And so the first one is so the reusable bag, which everybody goes is the perfect oh, one. Right. Yeah. I've been to stores now that they're not willing to accept them. Period. Yeah, they won't here in California. Yeah. So, but then the, the paper plastic thing is paper from a carbon recycling, paper's nothing wrong with it. It mm -hmm. works well from a carbon recycling process. And I'm meaning that from a more general, not whether or not we do it, but the fact that we can do it. Yeah. Uh, the, the plastic becomes a larger challenge because we don't have a good way of recycling that material. Yeah. And but if you're if you're wanting to deal with single use materials like in a hospital, uh, plastic is is what's going to keep us isolated and separated. So we point. have to understand that for certain foods we want plastic, but wrapping cheeses in plastic I've always thought was kind of insane because it's a living thing. It's mold. You exactly. want it to breathe. Yeah. You, so wrapping in plastic, basically you've isolated it and it's no longer that thing. If you're, if you're dealing with packages of milk, cardboard works perfectly well for this. So mm -hmm. there, there is ways. And that's why I'm saying go back to history and see how we did it in the past and choose the ones that might not be the most ideal from a carbon standpoint, but might be the most ideal from a nutrient recycling standpoint. Uh, or a management standpoint. And so we have to, as a society, sit down and say, okay, plastic for hospitals, brilliant, carry on. Plastic for packaging cheese, let's say that's stupid and don't allow that anymore. <laughs> you heard it here first. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I'm also really curious about what happens with the food system in general. I mean, I, I'm, I'm hearing that 
some farmers are doing well, maybe even better, like you mentioned earlier, whether it's cannabis or some certain um, products, because there's a greater demand for it. Um, but in other cases, because people aren't going out to restaurants or even taking an airplane, we don't even realize that, you know, the pretzels and the nuts and the meals that we eat on an airplane and in that hotel when we're on the go, that they all get their food from somewhere that we don't just buy food at the grocery store and not many people cook anymore, I don't think. Um, it's, I, I think that's you know, changed this last week. My, yeah. I have a sister-in-law that I don't know if she'd cook more than two meals in her life. Uh, maybe she, she'll yell at me for that. She'll probably say a few more, but she'll admit that she had a hard time boiling water. Uh, and all of a sudden the last couple of weeks, that's all she's, they've been doing. Mm-hmm. And exactly. they'll, and so they've had to shift to, and I know she's a smart, very capable lady. And so I'm positive she's become really, really good at it. And, and we have more time to do it. I, I am hoping that people are finding the joy in cooking. I'm really lucky. I mean, we cook. Um, we eat most of our meals at home anyway, uh, though I will admit the first week it was hard, you know, it, that little thing in my brain that's like, okay, it's been a long day. I just let's, let's go out and not make dinner and somebody can make dinner and clean the dishes for us. Right. That now sort of that has gone away. I feel like that was almost a habit that is, you know, that's going away, but you know, also without those outlets will farmers and, and certain farmers might fare better than others have, other outlets to sell and grocery stores have been designed over the years of people eating less at home, right. And eating more out and they can't keep their shelves full, obviously, as we were talking about, even with produce, we're seeing limited supplies or amounts of produce, not as much in California, probably as other places. Flour has disappeared from almost all the shelves around here. Who's, I mean, I guess everyone's decided to bake. We can't find sugar. Um, yeah. We don't really eat a lot of sugar, but still, I, I'm just surprised that there's no sugar. Yeah, sugar, sugar I can still find a little bit. Flour disappeared almost immediately. Yes. They've now restocked. The part I'm finding amusing is you go to the grocery store and there's one kind of flour now. Really? <laughs> well, because it used to be all these different versions of it, but if they're going to have to, if they're going to get sold out, it's hard to restock all versions. So That's we're going to supply you with the the major one. And we know that you're going to get bought it. We, we couldn't find yeast all of a sudden also because people have been making bread at home. People now. are making their own bread. Yeah. Well, I love this. I mean, people are going to create new hobbies and just, I don't know, hopefully this sticks. Hopefully um, when this is all over, people don't just, you know, run out of the kitchen and back out to restaurants all the time. Nothing against restaurateurs. I, I you know, I have nothing against food service. I like eating a nice meal out for sure. Um, but I do hope that attitudes change and people, yeah, find well, enjoyment in cooking. And I really appreciate Ina Garden and all the other people who are posting videos and recipes on how yeah. to cook. That's so awesome. Well, I'm curious because everybody called the, the, the people that, so my great grandparents were the, basically the pre-war people and they were listed as the greatest generation. And they did because they went through the hardship of the thirties and they went through two world wars and such. And I'm curious whether or not this time period that we're going through right now is going to do the same thing to millennials, uh, basically turn them into our great grandparents from a social standpoint and understanding of how communities have to work together and such like that. And it it gives promise. I'm not like, it is a dark period, but there's also promising things that are coming out of it like people are behaving at some level of isolation and they're they're trying to rally together to try to solve some of these things and people are still who would have thought that we would have listed a a grocery store worker as a frontline worker like i never would have guessed that and they get clapped so it's like they get celebrated which i think is awesome it's super awesome it is because they're risking their lives by being exposed to us and all the things that they're putting on the shelves every single day. It's amazing. So I have to ask you this question. Do you guys have enough toilet paper? 
Um, well, a perk that we have is that Quebec has a lot of toilet paper manufacturers because we have a lot of really -uh. good food. Yeah. So I went to the store, they were sold out and you're only allowed to buy two rolls of, what is it? Uh, 12. So 24 rolls at a time you're only allowed to buy. Okay. And it's only one company that's supplying, but if you go to a different store, it's one company supplying. So that's why I'm saying the variability is decreased but we're not lacking of toilet paper here. Oh my gosh. So basically you're saying we need to open the border just so we can get toilet paper into the U (laughs) S forget rock wall. We need toilet paper. (laughs) Can we make a trade? I don't know. Yeah. Fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) That is hilarious. Okay. So you guys are not, lacking toilet paper. Well, lucky you. Lucky for us, we were pretty stocked up before it started. And my mom is, you know, was super concerned. She, before anyone went down on lockdown, just even the hint that there might be a lockdown, my mom went out to the grocery store and bought, you know, a month's supply of food and um, you know, we were kind of making fun of her, like, where are you going to put all of this? Your pantry's already full. Your freezer's full of all these, you know, like fresh delivered meals that are frozen now and not fresh. And, you know, but you have a little bit of your mom and you, and it was like, you know, we have plenty of toilet paper, but I'm just going to buy another package just in case. And that's the last time we'd been able to buy toilet paper was oh, wow. like a month ago. So okay. thank you, mom, for being paranoid. Um, Right. Yeah, you can, the, when I when I go to the grocery store, I'm finding it interesting or the store because you can see which ones are local. So, like, we're not going to run out of maple syrup. We're good here in <laughs> Quebec for that. Uh, toilet paper, we're good too. And so, but you can see like grapes. That's going to be an issue for us because we don't grow that here. At least not at, for table consumption. We have plenty of wine, but we don't have it from the table consumption perspective. All you need is wine. I mean, yeah. let's face it. Uh, yeah, I mean, we are, we are definitely lucky to be in California. We are not going to be lacking any sort of fresh produce anytime soon, um, which I can't say the same for a lot of other states. Uh, so how, how do you like your lighter travel schedule? The last time I saw you was in San Diego and then we were both supposed to be in Tucson together a few weeks later and that obviously got canceled and we always seem to end up at the same shows. I, you know, yeah. I asked that question, when are we going to see each other again besides, you know, through a Zoom video? Yeah, well, well, we have the next conference, I think is in September. So we'll probably yeah. see you there. Well, there's ASABE in July, which I wonder if they'll keep that yeah. I'm going to bet money they're going to shut that one. Me down. too. Me too. We, we had the one in June that the, the CIGR, so the International oh, Agriculture yeah. Engineering Society and CSB, which is the Canadian version of it. And we shut that. That one was canceled last week. So, Do you think those events will actually happen in the fall? Um, that one's been postponed, I think, a year. So some of them will get canceled and some will get postponed. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm wondering. I mean, if I'm, I don't know. I mean, it's, everyone says that it's going to die down in the summer. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not. And maybe that's just being hopeful. Um, but then, yeah, all these other conferences, you know, I have several that were rescheduled for September and October and November. And I'm, I don't know if they'll actually happen if I want to go to them, you know, and, and then they're saying that it might flare back up in the winter. So I don't know. Well, I'm, I'm wondering if they're like our hockey, basketball, football, all the major sports, as well as all the conferences, they're all going to be trying to condense if they're, if we come back and they're trying to condense it all into one period, it's going to be overload for us. Like could they theoretically have NFL, NBA, NHL, Major League Baseball, all overlaid at the exact same time. Oh my God. That's all we're going to be watching. Well, you know what? We're going to be out of Netflix shows, so we might as well just watch sports all the time. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, and that doesn't even include the big ones, like, like IndyCar racing and tennis major tournaments, like Wimbledon, like how, how are we going to pack all these things together? Yeah. I mean, the other day, so 
one of um, our guilty pleasures. I don't know if people would think this is a guilty pleasure, but we'll just put golf on on like a Saturday or Sunday morning. You know, it's kind of nice background and we kind of like listening to the double entendres by the announcer. Um, yeah. And uh, it was on last weekend and I was like, there's a golf tournament. And Marcy's like, no, it, from 2019. And I was like, oh, I was like, I was wondering why all those people were assembled together. How could they do that? <laughs> so yeah, we, we're, we're reruns, I guess. We're critiquing all the commercials because people are giving hugs to each other that we know that aren't, aren't family. So. so weird. We watched um, Blade Runner over the weekend. I don't know if you've seen that movie, but yeah. you know, they're in a wet market, basically. I think in Japan, it looks like Japanese um, uh, writing. And, you know, all these people are together and all the animals with the people and then they're in the bar and it's just it was so cringeworthy it was so hard to watch that part like forget the rest of the movie it was just watching all these people in close proximity with each other and with animals and it was just like Ugh. like when are we ever gonna I, I imagine we will get over it eventually but how long will that take it's a strange feeling well, Spanish flu, it took them quite a while. It went through three phases, so. Well, are you enjoying um, not traveling as much? Uh, I wanted to go to Arizona. I really yeah, did. I did, too. I did, too. I was going to spend three weeks in Arizona because I had a conference, the, the NCRA in Tucson, and then two weeks later, I had a conference in Phoenix. So we were going to stay in a friend's cottage, uh, and we we're going to take our cat with us. And we we're just going to get some Arizona sunshine for three weeks. And I'm, I am a little sad that that one got that trip in general got canceled, but it also feels good to be at home. Yeah. Well, my kids are getting a little stir crazy. I'm noticing. How old so. are your kids? Um, 11 down to nine or okay. eight. Yeah. So are you homeschooling? Uh, well, my wife is a teacher, so oh, so she's got it. Okay. So she's doing some of it, but then last night I spent. We started preceding um, for our garden, so we spent a good two hours setting up cubes and preceding. And then I I brought home a few sample things that I'm testing, so we're seeing how well we, we work with that porous concrete uh, oh, yeah. and seeing if if we get what our lettuce will turn out on that. We've grown it before, but now my kids are in charge of it, so it's a slightly different challenge. What a good science experiment for them. Exactly. Yeah. So many learning opportunities. We have a little mini uh, three-level vertical farm in our office. So uh, it just came to full bloom. It's been about four weeks since we uh, germinated. We have arugula and romaine and butter lettuce and basil. The basil will take a while still. But um, so this week... We're just like, okay, we have to start harvesting. What are we going to do with all this produce? So, of course, we're eating some, taking some to Marcia's mom. And then we have some friends and family. Uh, what Actually, one of my coworkers were like, Lydia, you need uh, to come to the office and get some of this lettuce, you know, that you planted. So her husband came by and we're our office is on the second floor and so marcia bagged up you know like five or six ziplocs of lettuce put it in a paper bag and then dropped it down to lydia's husband <laughs> in his truck and then he drove away oh, nice. <laughs> so we're, we're literally doing drop-offs drop off That's the balcony <laughs> get your lettuce well, I have, I, yeah, I have strawberries, but nothing serious enough that I can feed anybody yet. But my kids go down and get a strawberry a day in our little garden system downstairs. So Nice. Well, this was really fun to talk to you. Um, Likewise. Thank you for your perspectives from so many angles of uh, your experience and being in Canada. I do think I that a lot of people are going to be really interested in your thoughts and um, i hope i don't get in too much trouble for anything that i said i tried not to say anything too controversial so. <laughs> you say that for the conference conferences when you talk about amber light that's really controversial i, I want to i actually i'm trying to push it one step farther but yes. that's another conversation okay excellent i i am in full support so we're trying to get a paper published but we're having challenges because people don't accept our underlying argument so really yeah. 
Well, you know, people keep inviting you back to talk. So uh, I think people like the controversy. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> All right, Mark. Well, um, talk to you in a couple hours. And thank you again. This no problem. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye, Mark. That concludes my conversation with Dr. Mark Lesred, Associate Professor at McGill, who now conducts research from the comfort of his home with the help of his new interns, his kids. I really am curious to know how his home research findings might compare to more controlled laboratory tests. If the growth chamber experiment is any indication, they may not be too far off from each other. I found it interesting to learn that his students are more engaged attending classes online. I wonder if other teachers or professors have had the same experience. I was glad to learn that the closed border with the US hasn't yet impacted greenhouse and horticultural supplies, but rock wool may become a pretty hot commodity if the borders aren't opened in the near future. Since Quebec apparently has five toilet paper factories, I really do think there's a trade opportunity here. Rock wool for toilet paper? Thanks, Mark, for the fun conversation about life on the farm, at the university, and in Canada.